Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. You talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast takeover episode. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Alison Tate, author of middle grade series, The Mapmaker Chronicles, The Adaban Cipher Novels, and The Maven and Reeve Mysteries, and co-host of the Your Kids Next Read podcast. But I like to moonlight over here at Words and Nerds to talk about creativity, delving into the different ways that real life can impact on the creative dream. Today, I'm talking to Anna Spargo Ryan, award-winning author of two novels and a brand new memoir, as well as countless articles and essays. Anna's memoir, A Kind of Magic, was released this month and is subtitled A Memoir About Anxiety, Our Minds, and Optimism in Spite of It All. Welcome to my takeover, Anna Spargo Ryan. Thank you so much, acclaimed author Alison Tate. I didn't say acclaimed. You're no, award-winning. I said <laughs> Do you probably want to should, fight? <laughs> probably should actually disclose right now that Anna and I know each other quite well. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if we do actually devolve into a fist fight, that is why. Um, mm. So let's talk about your memoir, A Kind of Magic. Tell me all about it. So it spun out of an essay that I wrote in 2016 called The Suicide Gene, which won the Horn Prize, which that's just like hashtag humble brag. Hashtag right and- there, award winning. <laughs> Prize winning, I think, actually, rather than award winning. Oh, okay. Sorry. It is important to get the details right. (laughs) Not sure what the what the correct vernacular really is. (laughs) And so yes, so this memoir has spun out of that. And what has happened in the meantime is that it has evolved from the suicide gene, which is extremely dark, into a kind of magic which reflects, I think, the way that my understanding of myself and brains has changed in that time. So I like to say that this memoir is about anxiety. It definitely is. I'm an extremely anxious person. It's also about learning to be myself and it's about self-forgiveness and love and death-defying panic and generally trying to have a happy life. It combines memoir writing, kind of traditional memoir, this is what happened in my life, here I am as a child, here I am as an adult, and also quite a lot of external research into the way that the mind works, how trauma and mental illness affect memory and how those changes in memory affect the way that we interact with the world um, and the way that we form self-identity and what that means for us as adults. So it was very interesting research to do and actually changed my perspective as I wrote. So it's quite a, it's a bit of a meta book, actually. I'm sort mm. of writing about the book as well as I'm writing the book. Yeah. 
See, you're the only person I know that could probably even manage to pull that off, but <laughs> we're going to get into that. But why why did you go down the memoir path after writing? Because you wrote two novels, The Paper House and The Gulf. Mm. What, what has then drawn you to writing, you know, essentially your own mm. story? I think the real question is actually why did I detour into writing novels? Because, <laughs> because because it was fun. Oh, uh, is that what it was? I is think that... so. I vaguely recall <laughs> us talking about it being a little bit fun at some point. It was, um, yeah. I, let's say it was fun. I have always <laughs> written about myself. I'm I'm sort of quite self-absorbed in that way. But when I was a teenager, I had a journal on the internet in the 90s where I wrote about all the feelings I was having. And I have written about myself on the internet, as you know, ever mm, since. Ever since. And I have, yeah. And so many feelings. There's been a so lot of feelings. Many. So many feelings. Just every kind, just running the whole gamut of feelings. Yeah. Yep. You've and... never shied away from a feeling ever, actually. That's one of the <laughs> things I do love about you. Just openly wearing all of my feelings constantly. And so, I mean, it doesn't surprise me at all that I have written a book like this. It seems a a kind of obvious and maybe inevitable culmination of all of the writing that I've done until now. I've written a lot of short nonfiction about mental illness over quite a few years. And the people who have read that and reached out to me have made me feel as though a memoir like this could be really valuable to somebody and that is a big part of why I wrote it um also it was just to kind of get it out it was partly to be famous and (laughs) partly (laughs) how's that working out for you (laughs) oh yeah so well and uh yeah but largely because I felt as though it it could give someone a new tool to use in their own sort of journey with mental illness I guess what do you think? Because I know it's been a it's been a process. What what mm. do you think is the most difficult thing about writing memoir? Like, if you had to pinpoint the one thing, mm. what would yeah. it be? So I teach memoir writing as well. I run memoir writing workshops and things. And the question that comes up the most, and that I also found the most difficult, is how to structure your life in a narrative sense. Mm. So you know, we don't experience our lives in that way. There's actually an one of the, let me just find it, this epigraph at the beginning of my book from Zadie Smith, which says, this is from her short story, Peonies, essay, essay. But out in the field, experience has no chapter headings or paragraph breaks or ellipses in which to catch your breath. It just keeps coming at you. And that's how I felt about my life. And I think probably how most people feel about their lives. Mm-hmm. Finding a way to put that into a book-appropriate structure is really difficult. It's hard to figure out where the story begins. It's hard to figure out where the story ends. And then it's hard to figure out what goes in it to get it from that beginning to end and to keep remembering the point of what you're trying to say, not just to write down all of the things that happened to you. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge that I had ongoing while I was writing this book was, does this need to be in the book? Is this part of the story? Is this part of the question that I'm trying to answer? What is the question that I'm trying to answer? That came up a lot. And I had a a time where there was a scene in this book about a quite traumatic miscarriage that I had when I was about 26. And it was a very difficult thing to write. And it was a very difficult thing to experience. And my publisher said to me, I don't really know how to say this to you, but I don't think this belongs here 
And I felt as though my difficult miscarriage was kind of clearly part of who I am as a person and the the pain that I have experienced in my life. And, but she was right that it wasn't part of this story and trying to narrow the focus of your entire life is really hard. If you're not writing your memoirs, quote unquote, because you were a US president and you're writing an eight volume kind of, if you're trying to cover one topic in a meaningful way, you do need to do that deliberate trimming down of your whole life, which is very difficult. So how did you go about doing that? Like, is that something that you, did you find yourself like as, as with that particular scene, did you write a whole lot of highways and byways and, and sort of have to keep coming back to, is this necessary? Is this not? Like, was it, was it almost like, you know, writing a bit of this and writing a bit of that and Mm. then collaging it all together into a quilt or, you know, did you sort of like start with a pattern? How did you go about it? Much more like the first way that you described it. And it wasn't just does this belong here, but also is this helpful? That was a question that I kept asking myself too, where the first version that I had, I dumped out all the angry feelings that I had. And like you said, they were sort of patchy. They were like, here's a bit of stuff that happened and here's a bit of stuff that happened. And I was so angry and I was writing down all this stuff that I had sort of kept carrying this fury around with me about. And as I wrote the book and figured out what I was trying to do, more and more of that stuff came out not onto the page, more of it was pulled out of the manuscript that I was writing and put in the bin because I realised that what I was trying to do was to not be angry, not be resentful, not put that on the page, not hold on to all of the negative feelings that I had, but actually to learn about how I could find a way through them and whether there was any sort of resolution, not to be cured, but to just find a more to find a way forward that I could live with, I mm. think, and holding on to all of that wasn't helping. So it went in the book, but then it, it got chucked out. And it was because I had in mind the whole time, what's the spine of this book? What am I trying to ask of the book? What do I want the reader? If you imagine what I was saying to somebody was, if you imagine a high school essay exam, what's the question that's at the top of the page that I'm trying to answer? And I kept coming back to that idea. What? How does it all tie back in? One of the ways that I describe it to students is like to have the, yeah, the spine of the book and to have the different things that you're writing about, like be the vertebrae that, that mm. sit with that spine. And if they don't, then maybe they're part of a different story. Maybe that's a different book. And it's not always easy to let go of them, especially in memoir writing, I think, because it's easy to feel like this is a crucial part of who I am and my own life story. But the more I was quite critical about it and looked to be objective about what was necessary to include, the tighter the story became and the better the book was. Does that mean then that you need to know what the question is before you begin or is it something that the question starts to emerge, you know, the the, the question at the top of the page, so to speak, starts to emerge, um, you know, as you as you kind of work through different aspects of your of your own narrative? I think in the case of what I was writing, which was actually, again, in that sort of meta way, it was a narrative about finding a self-narrative. So <laughs> it, it emerged over time. I Yeah, well, there's a quote in the book at the end of the book. I'll read it. It's by Paul de Mont, who was a French is. Oh, God. <laughs> Oops, was. look him up on Google. <laughs> a French philosopher who said, a thing that's definitely in here, 
Here we go. Can we not suggest that the autobiographical project may itself produce and determine the life? So I've said through writing a narrative, he hypothesizes we can create a narrative. When we write the story, we can become the story. And so what I was doing as part of writing the book was not just trying to find a narrative for the book, a structure for the book, but also to understand my own self-narrative better. And so that became more clear as I went on. And I didn't have the same question when I began as the one I had when I finished, that that question mm. changed. Um, I think it's good to have a question just in order to get started. It's very difficult, I think, to to sort of wrangle a book that you've just made up as you go along. And I say that as someone who definitely just makes up a book as you go along. Mm. I've never successfully planned a book ever. But when you have a question to start with, just an inquiry, just a curiosity, mm. what do I want to say? What do I want this book to do? That can be a good way into the book, even if it changes later. And I think it would at one level be a little bit strange if it didn't change a bit that while you were right, part of memoir writing and a lot of the the um, the scholarship around memoir writing is about the fact that the person writing it learns and changes through the writing. I think you're also, though, as, you know, to be a successful memoir, you also have to, you know, you have to touch the universal, don't you? You have to, mm. you have to draw the reader into it. You have to be able to, you have to be able to have enough people read your book and go, oh, I, this absolutely relates to me. This is exactly so. You can't yes. get too navel gazy because mm -hmm. otherwise, people are reading it just going, "Well, mm, okay, it's got nothing to do with me." So, mm. when you're writing the memoir, then do you have you got that reader on your shoulder as well, or are you are you kind of leaving the audience aside until you get down what it is that you you think you want to say? I think there's more value in navel gazing than authors sometimes think that there is there's definitely a way to relate to navel gazing as a reader that maybe, you know, when you're writing something that feels very introspective, mm. there's a good chance that somebody else has also had that type of introspection. Mm. So I think mm. there's, I, I don't think that navel gazing is not universal, I guess, in that sense. But <laughs> It's just that my navel is different to your navel, I think. Yeah, we well, I mean. We've never compared navels, I don't know. Maybe look, they're the same. Want, if you want to do that now, then... <laughs> We we're, we're on a podcast. People cannot see us comparing navels. <laughs> I feel as if though you're wondering, be, we are now we are now comparing navels. That would be, that would be a wasted moment. We can save that for another day. <laughs> um, yes, we are. I mean, you and I have different navels, but mm. I maybe have a similar navel to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> if you could, listeners, all send in photos of your navels, we could find out. Send them which to ones Anna. Are the most similar. <laughs> I think Send them direct to Anna, please. <laughs> please, please. Anyway. Do. I think that, yes, so I think there is universality in in writing introspectively anyway. I think that part of what brings somebody into a memoir as a reader is understanding that the person that is writing it understands them, recognising themselves in it. That's something that I talk about with students too. Like if one of the first things that your memoir has to do is to establish trust between the writer and the reader. Mm. How do I know that this is going to be an, a compassionate, a compassionate and empathetic and understanding place for me to spend time, this book? So my book, for example, opens with a scene where I'm visiting a new therapist for the first time. And when I read that to people who 
had also been to therapists for the first time, even though their experience was a bit different, there were there were universalities mm. in it that made them feel like I was going to come to them with a level of uh, equal equal experience that we mm. had this thing in common, and so therefore they could trust me to take them through the story at some level. Mm. So I think that's important. I think that asking questions about experience, being able to offer something outside of your own experience is part of that. But I, I don't know that it always needs to be explicitly separated in an like in a manuscript like this. Do you need to stop and go, so this raises the question of blah, 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 or can it be implied through the writing that you're doing? Mine switches between memoir and this sort of, I guess, more traditional nonfiction, mm. which which in narrative theory we would call the external rather than the universal, yeah. bringing in like research and facts and figures and politics and governance and these kinds of things. Uh, that is also a helpful way to illustrate the point that I'm trying to make. So here's my experience. Here's what I would like you to know about how that experience is able to be manifested in the world. So mental health care is really poorly funded, which is why when I, a middle-class white lady, went to try to get help, I couldn't, mm. even though I was in the best possible position really to be able to. Mm. The system is broken. Let me tell you about the system. That's sort of a, a kind of externalisation. The universality is like, can I be a person with mental illness and still have a full life? Yeah. And the navel-gazing responds to that question yeah okay so, yeah so and it I'm is... saying this to justify how self-centered I am <laughs> just okay. to be clear just to be clear just putting that <laughs> like, out no there. no being that self-centered was deliberate I was, yes. I was I, it that. was yeah. a choice it was a choice <laughs> to be that self-centered excellent I could be unself-centered if I wanted exactly absolutely mm. at any time mm. you could just start right now if you <laughs> wanted um we, so we are essentially taking a very deep dive into your brain at various mm. stages of your life. And you kind of said that, you know, part of the process was like, what do you put in? What do you put out? What do you leave out, et cetera? Mm. Is it, was it a cathartic experience or did you, did you find it also brought up a whole lot of things that you would have been happy not to ever think about ever again? I don't think it was either of those. I, a lot of people asked if it was cathartic. And it wasn't in the true sense that I wrote it down and it sort of expunged it from my body and then mm. I was, you know, I could let go of it. It wasn't like that. I can't remember the other thing you asked about what it was, but it wasn't that either. <laughs> did it bring up a whole lot of things you'd be happy oh, yes. never to think about again? Um, no, because what it did do was bring up a whole lot of things that I didn't think I wanted to think about and then give uh. me new tools to think about them more clearly and more constructively. And so what ha why it wasn't cathartic in that sense was because it was actually constructive. Mm. So it was, I'm going to write about this thing that happened to me. And instead of going, okay, now that's out, I don't need to internalise it anymore. I don't need mm. to keep internalising it. What I did instead was go, okay, what does that mean for me now as the present day person that I am, what did I learn from that? How did that have an impact on me and my identity? What have I taken away from it? How can I reconcile it? All these kinds. Of, it was much more active than just cathartic, I think. Mm. And so the things that came up that I maybe would have otherwise not really wanted to think about just became kind of the building blocks of my self that I mm. could then look at and go, okay, well, why is that there? 
does that need to be there with some of it? Can I can I put that somewhere else? Or can I understand that better with the new context that I have? Or have I got a new perspective on that? And where does it belong in the overall story of my life? And what I found, I've tried to articulate this a few times and have struggled, but what I've found was people... So what I learned firstly was that people who have experienced trauma or who have trauma-related illness or who have other kinds of mental illnesses tend to remember negative things. We're Mm. more likely to remember overly negative memories and not as likely to remember the good memories. And when I was writing this book, I put down a lot of the negative memories, things that had happened to me that made me feel bad. Mm. But because I was writing a book, I had to find the bits that went in between. Otherwise I didn't have a book. Yeah. So I started to mine my life for the connective tissue. And when I found it, it helped me, that quote before from Paul DeMont, helped me to figure out where the connective tissue was in my actual life, not just in the book where Mm. I was writing a narrative that needed to be cohesive. It made me more cohesive. So I had found and had reason to find these bits that held me together and then I had them as a tool in my actual life. So I don't think it was cathartic. The stuff is not gone. It's just better used. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. That's good. See, that's why you're the wordsmith around here, that you get to (laughs) articulate these things in such beautiful ways. Um, What was the response of, you know, the people closest to you? Because obviously it's something that every memoirist has to Um, has to kind of reconcile is the sense that, yes, you're telling your story, but you're also telling the story of those people who were also in your story Mm -hmm. and part of your story. So, um, you know, how how did they respond when you said, oh, I'm writing a memoir? And also, you know, now that they've read it, how has that Mm -hmm. gone? They weren't surprised that I was writing a memoir. There's a level in my family of tolerance of just like, oh, God. Here we go again. I'm sort of like, I'm really sorry that you had a child who was a writer. (laughs) <laughs> that must be that must be really hard. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad my children aren't writers. Uh, not yet. Well, oh, just like push them away at any cost. Please don't. <laughs> it's so unrewarding. You'll hate it. Don't, don't do, do this it. to yourself. No. Never, never try. Uh, I yeah. So they they have sort of a a tired, weary sort of acceptance that I will write <laughs> about things that have happened in my life. <laughs> I know that they were worried. I know my mum was particularly worried about what I might put in there. And she kept saying to me like, oh, will I like reading this book? And I was like, mm-hmm. Enjoy might be a strong word. That depends what you mean by like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and I worried a lot, a lot. I, I lay awake and worried about how this might have an impact on the people that I care about. And what it means to the value of having a good relationship with someone now and whether it's worth telling a story that might affect that relationship now Mm. because it was not so great before. That was a a thing I really grappled with because I felt like I could help a lot of people to see things from their past in a different way if I did the same with my past. But will I damage my relationships with the people that I love so much irreparably now because I have taken that stuff out again I had a couple of scenes with my mum in the book that I was really worried about that I was most worried about and that also I felt were the least my story so 
I'll take a step back, which was I think the book is divided into two parts, which is the bit where it was other people's lives and I was there when mm-hmm. I was a child. Yeah. You know, I was a child. Yeah. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't have really any sort of perspective. I didn't have a grown-up understanding of what was going on. I had to rely on other people and what they told me and what they taught me. And then when I was 20 and I had a baby, that felt then like it became my life. And so the section of the book that comes after that feels like my life. Yeah. I, you know, I'm the one who's making choices and decisions and can see things more clearly and has that adult perspective. So I wasn't so worried about what I wrote in those later chapters because I felt confident that that was my story and I was telling my story. And that Anne Lamott quote about how, you know, to paraphrase, if people wanted you to write nice things about them, they should have behaved better. <laughs> should have been and nicer. I said that, I said that to people <laughs> as well. Like, look, we both know this is what happened yeah. and it sucked. Yeah. It's going in there because it's important to my yeah. life. Yeah. Um, in the early chapters, I felt as though it was difficult to um to be clear that the things that happened that I was sort of conveying, that I was recalling that I understood them differently now. So here's a thing that happened, but I'm not angry about it anymore or yeah. I understand why it happened now. Yeah. So I tried really hard to do that, to say yeah. in the book, to sort of reflect on it. So there's sort of, a, I guess, a reflective section and then a more present section. Um, what happened was with my mum, which I was going to say before, I, I had these chapters or these scenes that I just felt really uncertain about because I was worried about how they might affect her and also that her friends might call her and say, have you seen what Anna's written about me? <laughs> it's so always I, other people, isn't it? Oh, other people. It's like other people like, think? Yep. Oh, she's fine with it. But, you know, if her friends are like, you know, everybody's talking about what Anna. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so we have never, she and I, really spoken openly about some of these things because that's not the kind of relationship that we have. My dad and I dissect every single thing that's ever happened, mm. everything. And mum and I never dissect anything. We mm. never discuss what's happened before. We're just sort of grateful that it's good now. Yeah. And in in therapeutic terms, my mum and I are like cognitive behavioural therapy and my dad and I are like, like schema therapy, which are both in the book. One of us, you know, we're diving into the past with my dad, but my mum and I are just making sure that things stay stable in the present, I think. And so I wrote, well, I rang her and I said, there's these bits of the book I would really like you to read and you can veto them if you want. If you Mm. want me to take these out, then I will. And she said, I'll read them and I'll let you know. And I said, no, I need to watch you read them because I know that what you'll do is you'll read them and you'll feel awful and you'll cry and then you'll ring me and you'll say it's fine and I won't know if it's really fine. Mm. And I want to make sure that I've properly understood and considered your feelings. So I sent them to her like during COVID, sent them to her as PDFs and we did a Zoom call and I watched her read them. And she did cry and mm-hmm. she got up from the, the Zoom call and walked out of the room. Oh. And my dad said, no, it's not that she doesn't think they should go in there. It's that the things that you're writing about are hard to remember it's yeah. hard to think about those things that happened. It's not because they shouldn't go in there. Mm. So I put them in there, but it was it gave us a way to talk about things that we had really never talked about before. Mm. And that has generally 
been the reaction of the people who are in this book who I love. Some of the people who are in this book I don't care about and I hope they die. Oh. But the people, <laughs> Just I don't hope there. they die. I don't. No, no, no. It's with police are listening. Like, like I don't that. hope they die. There's a headline right there. <laughs> when you're famous. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, look, some of the people, if there are if people in here who get angry because I've said they were an asshole, then I don't care. Mm. Um, but the people who I do care very much about have largely... I think had an opportunity to have a free and open conversation with me, which we haven't had a chance to do before. And that's been extremely meaningful. Just, hey, I didn't understand how you were feeling or that was really hard for me too. That's a thing that has come up to yeah. someone saying to me, that thing we went through, that you went through, we went through that together yeah. and I am sorry that it happened that way or can we talk about how I felt in that situation or how we are able to learn from it or I've had this very intense period over the past probably just the past week of people in my life really having these intensely serious and deep thoughts about how life has gone and how we feel about each other and it's a lot, to be honest, but it's very rewarding. And I, I mean, I don't think that's good advice. You know, I think that's testament to the kind of people that I love, which are patient people who love openly, mostly. And but not I think you've also, like that, you know. I think you've also done something that not everybody is, um, you know, in a position to do A and also brave enough to do B, which is you've pulled back the curtains on the inside. And so you're dealing with people, you're talking to people who have observed, you know, you going through all this over all of these years from an external perspective. And you have, by writing this book and showing it from, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak, have given them that inside perspective, which you don't often get in a situation like that because, you know, there's always a lot of, um, like there's a lot going on in a lot of these scenarios mm-hmm. that you're talking about. And if you're the person on the outside observing and just trying to kind of, you know, hold the fa- hold fast, hold the balance, you don't necessarily know what it's like from I- inside those curtains. And I think what you've done there. Um, And I guess this is a really interesting thing too, because it's a beautifully written piece of work, as all of your work is. You know that I think you write the most beautiful sentences in Australia. I know. You could stop coming to my house. Quite open about it. Well, I just, I just have to hope you could dropping words on the front doorstep (laughs) for me to pick up. But uh, you know, the fact that you can craft such beautiful sentences and articulate them in such a way about such painful things, because it is a lot of pain involved in a lot of this stuff. I think um, is is something that it's not easy. How do you do that? Like, how do you look at something that hurts you and think of a way to put it in a way that is so beautiful? I don't get that. Rather than just, you know, swearing like most people. <laughs> Listen, there's quite a bit of swearing in this book. My mum has now heard me drop a C-bomb, which is a horrifying thought. On audio? Yeah. Ooh, yeah. right. Yeah. Okay. So I'm grounded. <laughs> clearly for the rest of your life <laughs> that's right i think that one of the greatest 
One of the luckiest things that has happened to me is that I am mental and a writer and I have a chance and a capacity to try to explain how it feels in a way that is in a way that is compelling to read mm. or that is a different way from maybe another way that someone has described it or that touches on some image or some idea that maybe hasn't occurred to someone before and that feels like such a privilege so I I feel compelled to do it right can my words help somebody to be able to like for example to go to a psychologist and say I heard it described this way is that something that we could maybe talk about yeah I've talked a lot over the past couple of weeks about the abstractness and uselessness of clinical language. And in the book, every chapter starts with, a, the sorry, the title of every chapter is either a diagnostic terminology or it's a dictionary definition. Mm-hmm. And the point of that is that the chapters then themselves show by contrast through the lived experience how useless those kinds of terminology, that kind of terminology is. So one of the things that drives me to do this kind of writing, even though it can be hard to do uh, emotionally, is to offer something else, to give people a different vocabulary, to sort of create new language around mental health so that they can go to a doctor and instead of just saying anxiety, which is the only word that exists. Yeah to use these other more nuanced ways of describing things, even if they're not the ones that I've used. I don't, I'm like, I'm writing a dictionary of mental illness things and that will become the new. <laughs> Here are some metaphors you may you may wish to use. <laughs> Please adopt these specific metaphors and no others. <laughs> but maybe even just to give people, I don't know, like a permission to use that sort of language in a clinical setting mm. to say, I don't think anxiety is really a good enough descriptor of what I'm feeling. So what I want to say to this doctor is that when I go outside, my throat feels like it's full of bees. I'm like, well, yeah. that's a different feeling from some of the other ways that people experience anxiety. And I think that clinically that could be a really powerful tool. Also, the other part of it is I love writing and the challenge of capturing these extremely mm. hard ideas, mm. these almost almost inarticulable experiences is wonderful from purely a craft perspective. Like I have been through psychosis, which is being detached from reality. And if you've always been attached to reality, understanding psychosis is basically impossible yeah. how do you exist outside of reality what does that even mean how yeah. can I, I like there's no point of reference for that for most people trying to articulate it in a way that might get someone a little bit closer to understanding that is a beautiful challenge mm. so that really tickles me just from a writer craft perspective but what I will say on that is that I had this wonderful review come out in the Saturday paper by Geordie Williamson, who, mm-hmm. you know, it's Geordie Williamson is one of the ultimate critics in Australia, literary critics. He's just magic. Being reviewed by him at all is a privilege, let alone being reviewed beautifully by him. <laughs> and so I read that and I thought, oh, my God, what a, what a an amazing thing to be reviewed this way by Geordie fucking Williamson. You can edit that out. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to leave it in. I feel yeah, like good, we're, we're, we're having a real talk here. I'll just, good, I'll just yeah. let Danny know that we've now gone over into explicit. <laughs> Sorry, Danny. Sorry, um, Danny. 
But I was very restrained before in not actually saying the word, you, the you C-bomb, did. and just saying C-bomb. extremely yeah. well. It was, practi- I was practically like a G rating at that point, but I feel like I was like pretending we've... I was on the ABC. Yeah. <laughs> I like the fact that you can pretend that with me. Mm-hmm. I'll put on my best ABC well, voice so, now as we go right. forward. You're so professional. <laughs> but at the same time, so I had that review, and then at the same time I was getting DMs on Twitter from people who were saying, I just finished reading your book. And it made me feel like I had a friend who understood. Mm. And then another one, it's like, I don't feel so isolated anymore. And then another one that said, I bought this for my psychologist to read. Oh. And what I realized was that although I'm a writer first, I think, and I had thought of myself as a writer first, I cared more about the impact that the book had had on those people than I did about the beautiful review, mm. even though I love the beautiful review mm. and I will And, and you would take more of those. On yeah, my body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. like yeah, don't now write a negative review because you don't think that I want No, in fact, she just wants more beautiful reviews, please. That would just be great. Right. Yeah. Actually, just multiple beautiful <laughs> reviews per person would be great. <laughs> but it, it was interesting to me as someone who, like if you look at the memoirs that are out at the moment, Lots of them are written by people who have had an experience first, whether they are a celebrity or they're someone who has gone through a difficult experience in their mm. life or they have been part of making change. Or But they they are that thing first and then they have written a memoir. Yeah, I've always felt as though I was a writer first and then I was writing about things that I, had happened to me. Mm. So it has been very surprising actually to find that what I care about is more on the impact that the book is having on people than about people saying that it's beautifully written. Like I don't care if it's beautifully written as long as it un- it feels like a safe place for you to be mm. and that it feels like it understands you and that you are, you know, you are seen, I guess, and it doesn't at one level matter. You know, the writing is part of that. The fact that it is that I have thought about the craft of it, I guess, makes it clearer that it is that kind of book. But I'm not so worried about people commenting one way or the other on what the quality of the writing is. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's just talk a little bit about creativity and mental health because, you you know, that's where we are really. Let's face it. We're mm-hmm. right in that sweet spot, are we not? Um, mm-hmm. And it is actually why I dragged you here in the first place. You, mm. You've written a whole book about it. Uh, we've left bits in. We've put bits out. We've done all of those things. Are you able to see relatively clearly how your mental health or being mental, as you describe it, has impacted on your writing and creativity over the decades? Because we are talking decades now. Such a good question. See, I love it when you say that because now I just feel like that's it. I've got I've got my moment there. You can just leave I'm now. only here oh. for that. I can leave. Oh. Yeah. You can just Alison's talk gone, to yourself. Everybody. Yeah. She's just walked <laughs> off camera. It has helped me in various ways. It's helped me to be part of a community of people who understood what I was going through. It's helped me to, from a medical perspective, it's helped me to communicate my needs better. Um, I'm one of those people, you know, this will be a common experience for probably other people where I go to a hospital and I say, I don't feel very well. And they say, what's the matter? And I give them all of the clinical information and they go, are you a nurse? And I'm like, no, I just have to learn to self-advocate or I'll die. Yeah. So that, you know, being able to articulate it has been a critical part of being able to do that. It has helped me to understand myself better. The book is the most that that has ever happened, but Mm. it has helped me, as I said before, to find meaning and cohesion 
in myself by trying to articulate it in words on paper. That has been a really actually a key part of my recovery. Again, not in a cathartic way, but in a diving deep into finding understanding way in an analytical way, I suppose. And also it's helped me to, sometimes it helps me understand what I think, you know, there's that, I know a lot of, a lot of writers say that, like, I don't know what I think until I write it down. There's definitely an aspect of that. I don't know how much on balance, whether there's a net positive Mm. or whether I also in writing publicly about my mental health have, um, you know, whether that's had detrimental impact on me as well, whether I've lost work from doing, I'm sure I have, I'm sure people have Googled me and gone, Ooh, the crazy lady. No. Um, whether exposing myself to people's feedback on my mental health has been a net positive is hard mm. to say. But yeah. Because part, yeah. Well, the, because there is a, there can be sometimes, and, and this is just as again, a, an observer's perspective, a sense sort of in, pop culture that in some ways mental health, you know, issues can actually be feed creativity. Like perhaps it's more of a sense that I get, you know, from music, Um, almost like a sort of a superpower. Like is, Mm. would you, what are your thoughts on that? I actually had a chapter in the book originally about music and mental illness because growing up as a teenager in the 90s, a lot of my music heroes were people who felt really awful. Mm. They were people like Chris Cornell and Kurt Cobain Mm. and you know they were what I was trying to say in that chapter which I took out was it didn't it wasn't just part of the music when they got older the illness was still there yeah and I mean some of them didn't get old Kurt Cobain didn't get older no um it was an illness a serious illness as well and I really push back against mental illness as a gift for creativity Mm. it helps me to do other things I think it helps me to be more empathetic and being more empathetic makes me a better writer yeah but it doesn't it's not the madness that makes me a better writer no it's what I have to do to exist in the world with mental illness I think and I think there's a difference between those two things yeah I am anxious so I notice a lot because I'm always looking for dangers yeah yeah. always noticing everything yeah um I'm looking for who's going to hurt me so I pay close attention to people and their behavior and the way that they talk and that comes through in the writing but these are responses to risk and illness rather than being some divine intervention by the gods of creativity um, that give me an advantage as a creative person because I'm mentally ill. And I, yeah, I think there is research that talks about um, the the productivity and the award winningness and the work that's done by creatives who are, who have various kinds of mental illness. And I have cited them in my work previously, but I think that the causation is, a, is still we still don't quite get that right. Mental illness has an impact. Different kinds of mental illness have an impact on the way that somebody engages with the world. And yeah. I think that is where the creativity changes um, and that it should never, that idea of sort of the reclusive, mad painter, that kind of Van Gogh mm. vibe. Um, it's not, it's, it's not aspirational. You know, and it doesn't help anybody to talk about it in that way. No. What it, yeah, what it does is change the way that you see things and experience things, and that changes the way that you create out of them. 
Um, but no, I don't think it's helped me in that sense at all. I just think it has given me fuel maybe. Um, mm. Yeah. Because that made sense. No, no, it did absolutely make sense. And because, you know, the the flip side of that coin too is, you know, anxiety, and, and I know this because we've been talking to each other for years, um, brings, you know, crippling self-doubt with it as well. And I, mm. I often wonder how you – you know, when you sort of like feeling that way, how how you make yourself right anyway, knowing that, um, you know, feeling that way and knowing that you've got to send your work out into the world and wondering what the reception for that work is going to be. Hmm. How do you do that? How do you make yourself do it? <laughs> I think it's using the same tools that I use to make myself do anything. Mm. So how do I make myself take the dog for a walk when I'm scared of going outside? Mm. The same tools. It, I suppose validation is part of anxiety as well, reassurance, yeah. needing yeah. someone to say you're doing a good job. And yep. I'm very lucky that people have often said you're doing a good job. Yeah. I think if they hadn't, I probably would have stopped sending writing out by now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The constant, yeah, the constant feedback is really the the enemy of the anxiety disorder in some ways, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the um, waiting, the waiting and the writing. waiting. You, Let's you talk, know about we this. talk about the waiting a lot, don't yeah, we? You know, um, yeah, waiting and wait. Uh, there were times when I was waiting, when I was waiting to hear back on this book because it went to auction, I was waiting to hear back on what the different offers were. I was literally on the couch, curled up, heart racing for three days. Yeah. Like I couldn't function at all. And that yeah. was three days. Like you had been that's a good that's a great months. feeling. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. 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 I, it's unsustainable for me. No. So yeah. But the thing I find fascinating about you is that you're kind of a sucker for punishment in many ways because you do this, you know, regularly, but you're also, you know, you you make your living as a freelance writer as well mm. as a novelist and a memoirist and you you have clients and you do, you know, you're, you're putting, you know, features together overnight and you like, how do you meet deadlines on difficult days when, when you're lying on the couch with your heart, heart racing? Sometimes I don't. One of the benefits, and the world doesn't end. Well, oh well, sometimes it does. Yeah, sometimes but it does. One of the silver linings of writing about mental illness is that now everybody knows that I'm mental. <laughs> so I go to someone and I go, "Do you know what? Though I haven't, I'm not going to be able to get that thing done because my brain has caved in." And they're like, "Look, I knew that was a possibility." Yeah. So right. being open about my mental illness. And also trying very, very hard to be the best that I can at my job is how I manage that. Yeah. When I deliver the work, it will be good. Sometimes it will be late. Yeah. That's kind of it. But you're upfront you know, and honest can, about it. Yeah. People you know, know that I'll get it done yeah. eventually and it will yeah. be excellent. Yeah. And a lot of the people I work with actually say to me, I, I, I mean, mostly I get things done on time. I'll just be clear about that. But there are clients of mine and editors of mine who will say to me, I understand the the risk <laughs> that I take with working with you is that it might it might be interrupted by mm. how you're feeling. Mm. But I love the work that you do so much that I'm prepared to take that risk. And usually it's fine. And that's about, I've written about this before, about having to feeling like I have to prove and make up for the fact that I'm um so it'll prove that I am good at my job and mm. to be as good at my job as I possibly can. Yeah. And I feel a lot, actually a lot of pressure to be excellent at my job because still now when I'm 40, 
I'm still trying to compensate for being who I am as a person. Mm. Like I'm an anxious person. It takes a lot of energy to be my friend. It takes a lot of energy to work with me. It's not straightforward all the time. It's not just a standard sort of relationship that we have, even though it's very common. It's a very common kind of relationship to have, whether it's work or personal, whatever. But I still feel I haven't moved past yet the feeling that I need to make up for being who I am. So that's a very honest answer to that. It is. But, you know, you're worth it. I'll give you the honest answer. (laughs) You're worth it. Um, So I just have one last question for you because you have, as you mentioned, carved out a bit of a niche for yourself writing in the sort of mental health space Mm. as well as other places. Do the ideas for stories like fiction, nonfiction, and I ask this, you know, because I've read a lot of your work over the years and, you know, does it come as a response to what's happening around you? Like you talked about the mental health system being broken. You talked about the way that people, you know, talk about, about, you know, what's happening to people, you know, or is it an articulation of what's happening inside you? Like as far as, you know, because people are always like, where do you get your ideas, Anna? And I guess, you know. People never say that to me because I never have any ideas. People say that to you. I say that to you. <laughs> Like, Alison, can I just have one of your ideas? <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, look, uh, it's both. It's both. Sometimes I have a feeling and I think, oh, that might be something that other people have experienced that they might, well, I don't know, like to read something about. I guess often it is an external thing. So I wrote a thing about ADHD recently. That was a response to journalists Other, other things ADHD, about ADHD. <laughs> ADHD is fake. I'm like, well, look, no, it isn't. I'm just going to write a thing about it. So I wrote a thing about that. Um, so sometimes it's that. Mm-hmm. I would love to write about things that aren't mental illness. <laughs> I, I started writing professionally when I was very unwell. So if you read the book, the timing of it was like when I was mm-hmm. finishing up at Neighbours and I had to quit my job at Neighbours because I was so sick. And I started writing then full time and all I could write about was mental illness because I couldn't mm-hmm. think about anything else. And it did pigeonhole me a little bit. And I think I'm a better writer than just writing about mental illness. Um, so I've got that in my mind as well. I started out writing about food. I'm actually an award-winning food writer. Oh, you had the breakfast blog. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'd almost and forgotten. I wrote... And I loved mm. the breakfast blog. <laughs> yeah. And I won multiple awards for writing about breakfast. Mm. And I love breakfast. Mm. And I would love to write about food, but that's not what people expect me to write about at the moment. But I do write, I'm trying to write more about things that aren't mental illness because it's cats. not the only thing that I am. You could write about oh, cats. Oh, yeah, cats. Cats, cats are, are the only thing that I am actually in fairness. Actually, well, you know, if you follow Anna on Twitter, you'll know that cats feature. <laughs> and dogs. dogs yeah, and well. dogs. Yes, mm. yes. Mm. But, like, I um, I took up running and I've written a little bit about running mm. and it was nice to write about something else. And, I mean, that still was sort of a little bit about mental health because it has had a positive impact. Mm. My mental health being better has had a positive impact on my running rather than the <laughs> other way around. Um, but it was nice to go, here's a thing that I just like. I'm mm. going to tell you about it, mm. which I haven't got to do as much as I would like. And, you know, I would like for my next novel to be something, if I write one, to be something quite different mm. from this. I feel as though in part the memoir is like, not a full stop, mm. but it is a way to go, okay, look, here's everything I have to tell you. <laughs> and it, it isn't, but, you know, this is like 
this is what you need to know for now yeah yeah this has got to get you through for a little while okay um yeah if you would like anna to write you some features about bridges or um (laughs) what else what else would you like to write about uh, um eggs eggs very good at eggs excellent avocado on toast yeah yeah (laughs) i'd really really like to write a cookbook i have kind of played around with writing cookbook for many years mm. um but i have never been able to figure that out all right well yeah. we'll be looking so, out for anyway. it no matter yeah. what you come up with i'm sure it will be immensely readable mm. very beautiful sentences you know always and um mm. i will of course be first in line with my pre-order for my signed copy with stars all over it um mm. anna spago ryan it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for helping me take over words and nerds in such a impactful and excellent way and um i will look forward to our next phone call in which we dissect our entire interview and go oh we should have done that differently that's right right after this allison's actually calling me right now to say, <laughs> oh my gosh we did it all wrong we do it again. did it all wrong we let's do it all again. those things we were gonna say yep. <laughs> all right thank you very much and bye thank you bye